dum dum. I have to figure out how to put audio on after that goes away because it's just awkward. However, what's not awkward is Jonathan K. He's the editor of Quillette. Um, he is sort of a rabble rouser. Um, and for some reason, he became sort of famous for like a couple days because of Dog Shampoo and Seth Rogen. But he's with us today. You guys have seen him on the Dean Blundell podcast. Uh, he's been a guest there many times. So I would like to welcome Jonathan K. Jonathan, how are you? Good. What's up with that creepy theme music? Like it's, you know, it's a good question. And you're going to have to direct your hate mail towards our producer, Chris Rook, because I had actually went out of my way to purchase another beat and it got swallowed away in the abyss of something. And then he just stuck that on it. And I've been stuck with it ever since. So it's really about me not being proactive enough to change it back to where it was, but I'm like, it's not my fault. But there was something, something, I mean, it was both classy, like it's sort of like a PBS documentary about some tragic event. And, but then we come on and it's just you and me kibitzing for 45 minutes. So I feel like the music kind of gives people like the wrong impression of the level of seriousness that your guests that, at least in my that's case actually, yeah. that's that's actually good that's a good thing because the music was designed to get people to react to it that way so okay. that the rest of the interview would seem a little less daunting okay okay well then it did its job okay good thanks yeah. for pointing that out john i appreciate i also i, I apologize for looking like this but i just came back from disc golf and so um, that's why I'm not wearing like a dinner jacket and, uh, it's a, it's a super rough sport. It's well, <laughs> it's, uh, it's ideal for these, uh, socially isolated times we live in. Um, but anyway, I just, I, I take your podcast seriously and I don't want you to take my informal appearance as a gesture of, you know, that I'm being dismissive or anything like that. I know how seriously you take my podcasts, and I really appreciate that. <laughs> okay. Um, have you been following the caravan stuff? I just want to touch on it for a second because I'm a little confused about a lot of things. So this is one of those stories that I am following primarily through the freaked out reactions to it. So the story itself is, you know, I mean, like if we were in Europe, this kind of thing happens every second Tuesday, right? There's a bunch of right. people in a particular industrial sector. They're pissed off because their subsidy got cut off or taxes are higher, or fuel prices went up or they went down. Like in France, this happens all the time. It happens in other European countries. It's like a fairly familiar form of protest. Uh, here in Canada, though, <laughs> you see people like losing their minds. It's January 6th. Uh, man, the barricades. Uh, these, these evil truck drivers are, are coming for us. And so... I've primarily, like probably a lot of Torontonians, been following it mostly through the somewhat hilariously hyperbolic reaction of people who themselves are just reflexively against whatever it is these truck drivers and their entourage are are in favor of. Uh, so yeah, that's the extent to which I've been following it. Oh, okay, because it because it seems like it was a, it's a, now a salad bar convoy where you can pick what you don't like about Justin sure. Trudeau. And that'll be your motivation to go and drive along the convoy. But the original reason was the um, mandated vaccinations for truckers. Um, they had to be vaccinated to go into the States. And um, so they have to now do their routes domestically. I don't understand how, that, how that's Justin Trudeau's fault. Because you can't get into the United States if you're unvaccinated and an essential worker. So who is... 
why is Justin Trudeau at fault for that? So, uh, look, by the way, first of all, it's very easy to get into the United States, even if you're unvaccinated. I've been to the United States three times in the last year, and um, I, was, I was not asked for my vaccine status uh, on any of those occasions. Coming back to Canada, right. they're incredibly rigorous. Uh, okay. But yeah, the last time I was actually en route to Albany, New York, of all places, uh, and the guy said to me, he said, passport, please. And I gave him my passport, and then he said, uh, reason for travel. And I said, board game tournament. And like, those are the magic words like the guy cannot get rid of you fast enough. Like he thinks he's forget vaccines. He thinks he's going to catch nerd from you. So he like perfect con for a terrorist or something. It, you know? No, honestly, like he was just get out, get out, get out. You, you disgust me. And uh, but no, and, and it's sort of incredibly. Um, Were you wearing that outfit? Is that? Is that uh, no, I was wearing something more provocative. But it's there's right. quite a disparity because then on the way back coming to Canada, they're incredibly rigorous. Like I was interviewed by a public health officer and they, they looked at all my documentation. Um, so it's, it's, it couldn't be more different. But if you're a truck driver, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, if, if you're not vaccinated, it's a huge problem. So I get that. I will say right off the bat, I don't know if this is going to alienate your audience. I'm vaccinated. If people listening to this, watching this are, are unvaccinated, I, I don't support the government forcing you to get vaccinated, but the science supports vaccination please consider getting vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, I, no one should shame you for that choice, but it's going to protect you and the people around you if you do get vaccinated and boosted. There, that's the end of the speech. I'm going to shut up about that. So, Brave words by Jonathan Kay. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's, by the what's way, your... I don't think my audience are, are quite how you... Uh, the, the, my, my demo is probably not anti-vaxxers. I, well, I, mean, I, I make no I've presumption. I've been going on a binge lately, making fun of them. When I spent a year and a half being like, guys, come on, you can't bully them into getting vaccinated. It's not going to work. And then I it's just I reached my limit when when all of these, and I know that we get inundated with it, but like I feel like there are grifters that make money fooling people that aren't that bright. So I'm not really mad at the not that bright people, but I'm really mad at the grifters. So I don't I don't like to use the word grifter because grifter has now become the word people use for person I don't agree with who is able oh, to make a living like that. I hope that's, you know me well enough to know by now that, that that's not that I, I would never say that. No, I'm talking, I about, do not. I'm talking about like people selling. I do not know like you well enough. I don't think, well, you know well, what? I, I'm, I'm talking like Chris Sky, for example, he's a grifter. I'm talking like um, uh, Dan Dix from Press for Truth. He's a grifter. Like these people that make money spreading things that they yeah, know. I know that's true not and you. They take advantage of gullible people. It's not about opinion. It's about. I, I, I know that's not you. But although that word grifter does get spread around pretty promiscuously and and often, I mean, you're using it in a more narrow sense, but often it's just used by uh, somebody who's making a living who is, is saying something that you disagree with. But going back to this trucker thing, um, you know, you mentioned how it's a fairly narrow issue. It's an issue of whether you can cross the border without getting vaccinated. Tr the history of trucking strikes in other countries is kind of interesting because often these things happen for fairly narrow reasons. Like you, as I said, in France, uh, it happens in the Middle East when like, you know, fuel prices go up um, or there's some kind of like regulatory change um, or employment standards, like, you know, that's just it, you know, suddenly there'll be 10,000 trucks clogging the highway in France. And then you look at what they're protesting and it might be a, a fairly narrow regulatory thing, um, <clears throat> but it's something that affects the lives of these people and rules about cross-border travel. If you are a trucker, it, it can have huge, huge impacts on your livelihood. Um, so, so I, I can see why if you're a white collar worker, it seems like an obscure thing to protest over. 
but that to a certain extent shows how completely detached many people in the white collar pundit class are from the day-to-day -day lives of working people. You know, we go on Amazon, we order something, it comes the next day and we're like, well, how'd that happen? It happened because, you know, people in trucks and people working logistics industry and stuff like that make it happen. Uh, and every once in a while they get pissed off and then we take notice of them. That's I guess this, so go I guess, ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you up, but I, I get, well, I guess I mean to totally cut you up, but I'm, yeah, you did. <laughs> I, guess, I, guess, I guess what I'm thinking though is like, what, what is the policy that they're protesting? Like, did Trudeau do something that made their lives more difficult? And if so, what was that? Uh, actually, well, I mean, there was, I mean, this was the thing. Um, and uh, and it got walked back. But bureaucrats, uh, as I understand, it was a mistake. Um, they they overreached in terms of their interpretation of the, the vaccination requirements for truck drivers. Uh, and there was a period during which uh, it really did look like... Um, you know, thousands of truckers are going to be affected by this. And then if I remember correctly, a couple of days ago, it got walked back, but it was during that period uh, when a lot of truckers were, were fed up. And, and just to be realistic, this overlaps with a, a demo calling them anti-vaxxers, you know, it's a term of abuse, but like there are a lot of people who, uh, I'm not saying all truck drivers are anti-vaxxers or all anti-vaxxers are working class people, but there's a lot of people who are skeptical of the science in this area. I don't think they should be skeptical, but they are. Uh, these are these are people maybe who aren't Trudeau voters. Um, however, we should be careful. There was a great article in the New York Times yesterday about the anti-vaccination movement in Germany. And the, the story started out with this great vignette. Uh, or, you know, Germany, you'd think, oh, they probably have very high vaccination rate. I think the vaccination rate in Germany is only something like 70%. And they the reporter started his piece. It was a scene from a protest where these two protesters were side by side, one of the protesters was like this hardline right-wing guy. And the person next to him was, I think, I forget it was a woman or a man, someone who described themselves as like an eco-feminist, um, very into organic food, very much on the far left and was suspicious of vaccines from that perspective. So, you know, we always need to be careful when we talk about people who oppose vaccines. Yes, there are some people who are like sort of right-wing types. Uh, but there's also, you know... Uh, it's the fringes. The far left is that homeopathic kind of... It's not granola just far left. Yoga so, kind of stuff. And I August, saw something that... I Sorry, I, don't, I, I just want to... Because I think you might go here. Um, I saw something that you posted the other day, which was an excerpt, I think, from an article that I read months ago, saying that the average um, unvaccinated person is a 42-year-old female liberal voter. That was August 2021. It was published in McLean's. And just to be careful about my wording, if I remember correctly, the wording was the average, the typical or median or whatever, I forget the, the term of art, uh, vaccine skeptical. So these weren't people who were like, you know, vaccines are going to kill you, but they were, they're hesitant, or vaccine hesitant, I think was the term. I think the okay. typical vaccine hesitant person was, if I remember correctly, a 42 year old female capital L liberal voter. Now, doesn't mean... You're a 42 year old woman, you vote liberal, you're an anti vaxxer. But it did suggest this is, I mean, this is August 2021, but there are a lot of, call them, you know, upper middle class yoga moms who, at the anti vaccine movement, don't forget when it came to measles, when it came to um, getting vaccinated, you know, sort of the, the anti vaccine vaccine movement as it was before COVID 
was very like much the autism upper, generation, the RFK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, very, that was very much an upper middle class white phenomenon. And in fact, at one point, one of the biggest pockets of measles in the United States was the high income areas, suburbs of San Francisco, where you had a lot of very wealthy people who shop at Whole Foods and maybe get their health information from like Reddits about, um, you know, health food trends and stuff like that and just get misguided, not because they're sort of right wing Joe Rogan podcast addicts, but because they get into sort of like very fashionable health food stuff and they get misdirected that way. So it's just, we shouldn't generalize. It, it is, you see it on the right and you see it on the left. Yeah, it's diverse. As usual, the, the loudest ones are the ones we tend to identify them with or whatever. So um, I don't know how we're going to get around that. Uh, you know, our media might have to change a little bit. I, you, when you, when this pandemic started, I noticed that you were doing, you were doing like graphs, stats and yeah. how it spread and all that kind of stuff. Um, did you, when you see stuff like this caravan, is the fear of like super spreader events still real? Um, do, does anyone really know the answer to that question? So uh, I think what you're referring to is in April, 2020, I wrote an article that went viral. It was an analysis of so-called super spreader events because right. real doctors, real epidemiologists, real public health officials, unlike me, I'm a layperson, uh, hadn't yet release their peer-reviewed stuff on it, which that start stuff didn't start coming out till May or June. And so in my journalistic capacity, um, I went and I journalistically went and looked at all these super spreader events all over the place. And I think I analyzed like 28 of them. And I wrote an article about how based on, on these observations, it seemed like all of the, all these events tended to happen at the same kind of event where you had animated face-to-face -face contact, singing uh, these are often funerals parties uh and, and I, I remember I the choir example in, the in choir yeah it seemed to be that it was because there's this i know this isn't a scientific podcast but there's there's airborne transmission which tends to be when you have droplets that are less than five to ten microns in diameter and then you have ballistic transmission of pathogens which tends to happen when you have so-called large droplet transmissions when you're shouting at somebody or singing or whatnot, and the pathogens get transmitted ballistically. Um, and it seemed to be that the original version of, of COVID was transmitted through large droplet ballistic transmission. And I um, it, that article got picked up by a prominent epidemiologist, um, and it was it kind of like rocketed me to layperson COVID expert fame. That was in regard to the original COVID. The, the, what's what's interesting now is we use the term COVID to describe Omicron, but there have been so many mutations to the the virus that Omicron is in many ways just a very different disease. First of all, it really is transmitted um, in large part through uh, airborne aerosol contagion. As put, like the original COVID was was almost entirely ballistic transmission. We were all washing our hands and stuff like that. That was nonsense. Uh, even the uh, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States in mid twenty twenty said, you know, all this hand washing is it might prevent other diseases, but it's probably not going to do too much in COVID. The thing, so yeah. Omicron is is much more contagious in part because of all the mutations on the spike protein, but also in large part because it really is, um, you, it's kind of like in the area, much like measles, by the way. Uh, measles, one of the reasons measles is so contagious is completely airborne. You can be in the same room with somebody and get it. And I think Omicron is like that. And so to talk about super spreader events with Omicron doesn't make sense as much because- okay. 
any room with Omicron can become a super spreader event. And also because so many people have had Omicron, even people who don't realize it. I think in Germany, they're now at 600,000 cases per day or something like that. Um, yeah, and there's another variant already, isn't there? Like BA2 or something? Yeah, it's a subvariant. although... And apparently I mean, you can get that one on services now. We're back to services again. We're back like to that. services. Okay, so the thing is about... There have been many variations. The primary focus on variation comes when there's a big shift in mortality or a big shift in, in the vector of, of disease spread. Uh, Delta, I think it was like 30% more contagious and it seemed to be more acute in terms of its uh, the symptoms. Uh, Omicron is notable because it's much easier to get, but also because I mean, it's now widely recognized that it's just much less, I don't know much less, but it's, it's less severe, especially uh, people who are vaccinated. Um, this new subvariant, which is, as I understand, like in Denmark, I think was sort of, uh, it's a huge spike in Denmark. I don't know yet that they know that this is going to have like a huge effect on the important indices, like how easy is it to give it to somebody else, uh, what the mortality is, uh, stuff like that. I think it's still early days in that regard. Jonathan, Jonathan K joins us. Um, he's situated all the way to one side of his screen so we can have a good view of his games and the shelves i don't it's very modern i don't know i don't i don't artist. lend myself well to close-ups i can go closer if you want you know oh, what go close as you want baby. i think so in the chat window if yeah. people i think the first person who anties up four figures to your gofundme or your patreon or your paypal or however you fund this i'm gonna go like 30 percent closer based on the financial donations of of people in the chat i think <laughs> good luck with that <laughs> <laughs> or maybe okay, i'll set up a, are, then. Fine. a private channel just for the major donors uh and yeah that... <laughs> I, I, yeah you're gonna have to contact dean ask him how he pays me you gotta hustle <laughs> you gotta to hustle um listen no, no i love it um the the idea that um that neil young and i don't want to talk about all the pop stuff but i just find it interesting that it didn't feel i think i was wrong about this too that neil young was saying it's him or me I think he was just sort of saying, ah, I think I just want to be off the channel if uh, if if they're going to keep Joe on because I don't like the information he's spreading. So I couldn't tell if I was like, oh, fuck, he's like an actress having or an actor having a hissy fit on set saying, I can't work with this co-star. Either he goes right. or I go. Or if it was just sort of like, you know, I don't like it. I don't care. I got enough money. I'll take my shit off. And because there's a big difference between the two. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. It's it's weird that we now live in an age where that kind of stuff happens. Like, I'm I'm older than you, but I think even even someone in the bloom of youth like yourself, 
will remember the days when it was just seen as normal that, you know, we'd get our media from like TV or radio or something like that. And you would never hear an artist say, well, you've got to take my music off the station because you're playing the music of, of some other guy whose views are, I don't like. Like Imagine it was Duran Duran tried that. That would be like big Durant. story. Simon Le Bon was a, a clearly a pioneer in the social justice movement. Uh, Simon Le Bon, look it up, uh, millennials. It's, it's a thing. So it was just taken for granted that um, that a media outlet would broadcast all kinds of stuff. And just because you are at one point in the political spectrum, it doesn't mean that if that outlet a half hour later broadcasts something else, that you, like you don't have a veto over it. It's a kind of a modern thing that says my content is on this giant media company's bandwidth, like Spotify broadcasts, I don't know, thousands of, of shows, thousands of artists. And there's this person I disagree with. So you have to take my stuff up. Like that's that's a relatively new thing. And once you you're once taking you're, it's like taking vicarious possession over somebody else's morals. And, and being told that you're and telling people that, well, I'm basically forced to take on Joe Rogan's morals if we're but on the same. It, yeah, but it also conflates different kind of media. Like, so, for instance, if you are running a blog that's like ideologically inclined and you have an ideological position, position, there's like three people who run the blog and you're having a fight with somebody about the blog, it kind of makes sense that you say, hey, look, this blog was created to advance ideology X. Why are we publishing something we disagree with? I'm going to quit this blog if you do this because it brings us into disrepute or this isn't what I signed for. I get that, right? But Spotify isn't a blog for three people. Spotify is like a mass distribution service. So you, you're seeing, and, and you see some of this blurring, like at the New York Times, when, uh, when Bennett was thrown out as op-ed editor, I guess it was last year, you kind of saw people at the New York Times, who are sort of blurring the distinction between are we at a blog for three people where we have a certain ideology, or is this a mass medium where we publish all sorts of things? And you see the ethos of the tiny little blog model kind of just leeching into the mass broadcast model. Um, I think see, we had, wasn't, yeah. wasn't an early carnation of that um, before the internet even the way Disney didn't allow their brand to be attached to anything that would be considered even mildly risque. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah, not know, the know, that's, example, but yeah, well that's been going on for a while. I mean, look, that's normal brand management. Um, and, and that's like, that's a conservative phenomenon. Um, you know, Brand like managers. I remember back in the day, back in the day, it was the Republican wives. It was and like Tipper Gore, Al Gore's mm -hmm. wife, yeah, and and these committees of like Christian ladies and stuff that were right um, social saying, yeah, for, because Two Live Crew had a had a really it was it was like, black it was black song. rap music and it was white heavy metal. It was Dungeons and Dragons. It was video games. Uh, we were all going to hell, and we were all going to start picking up scimitars and swords and size and attacking each other because we were playing Dungeons and Dragons and listening to heavy metal music. Uh, yeah, there was a whole social panic over that. And that was a complete right-wing phenomenon. So like, yeah. and this, is, this and, is an example of extremists basically copying each other's um, methods because the social panic now largely exists on the left side of the spectrum. But 10 mm -hmm. or 20 years from now, it'll go back to the right. I mean, and you actually already see it on the right. Like as much as I'm not a fan of critical race theory, you see right-wingers in the United States 
talking about critical race theory the way they talked about like rap music 30 years ago. Like it's, it's, it's another kind of social panic. They're, they're freaking out. They're using the same kind of language. But it kind of spoils the um, the debate that exists inside the hyper like the hyperbole. Like there is a debate about critical race theory that you should be able to have at least like on the way the content is delivered. If it's like demeaning to any groups, and if it's like you know if it's if it's going to create weird divisions in the classroom based on race. Like I don't know. You got to think this kind of stuff through. I think like before you just start teaching it. However. Um, the the panicky right wingers take over the argument, and then the argument just becomes between them and the people who support it, and the people who just want to have a new nuanced discussion never get one. One of my problems with the way the issue of critical race theory is, is talked about is so this may surprise some people who who like to think of me as like this foam flecked uh, conservative whack job. Uh, I mean, I, I am I am a whack job, just not uh, a conservative one. Is you might dress I, like one a little bit, but you just came from frisbee. So it's, it's not called frisbee. It's called disc golf. A frisbee is a toy that children use. I thought disc it was golf. ultimate frisbee. Isn't it the same thing? Yeah, we, it's a different sport. Disc golf is is its own athletic niche. All right. Um, you know what? I'll educate you about about this off air. It's like so, difference between rugby and Aussie rules. So you, you, okay. so you don't embarrass yourself in front of the disc golf community as you just did. <laughs> yeah. But, yes, but so when I was, in, I have, I actually still have my law school transcripts from the late 1990s. I studied critical race theory. Uh, it was under it was under the rubric of something called critical legal studies, uh, but one of the main uh, proponent one of the main aspects of that was was critical race theory. Um, the professors we had in that class we had visiting professors who were were then giants in the field, and critical race theory at that time was not like a crazy thing. Um, you know, we studied things like what are the effects of ostensibly race neutral laws on different communities, and the classic example here is you know, the difference between sentencing guidelines for powdered cocaine and for crack cocaine. And, you know, one was for white stockbrokers and the other was primarily affected communities, um, you know, black communities. And, and, and even though race wasn't mentioned in this legislation, it had a disparate impact. And critical race theory originally teased out the racist intentions behind some of these laws. And that was a good thing. Like it was, it was a tool for understanding our, our legal and policy environment. Then in the last... 20, 25 years, it's metastasized into a kind of more cultish um, doctrine that is sort of about the original sin of whiteness. And it's been, unfortunately, like a lot of doctrines, it's the people who are the most radicalized are the people who have sort of taken control of its commanding heights. And now, yeah, it is kind of wacky. And, and you actually see some of the original architects of critical race theory, uh, even... I think it was a New Yorker, you know, tentatively and carefully critique some of these broader, crazier applications of the doctrine they created several decades ago. So I'm very, I'm, I'm wary of people saying, oh, critical race theory is like super racist and horrible. It's originally, it was, it was not like that. Um, and, and so it's like anything else, right? Like it gets, um, the, the, the meaning of the term gets changed and then it becomes malleable depending on who you are, right? Yeah, which is why I say, look, if you see somebody saying something crazy and racist, like all white people are evil or all purple people are evil, or, you know, whatever, call that out and say, look, this is crazy. I don't I don't want my 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 grade four student learning to categorize people by by race as if they were insects like this. This is not I don't care if it's black, white like this is this is toxic. But that should be what you target. Don't don't target the label and say I reject critical race theory. 
um, because it's then that gets into the culture war thing of you know the Kendiites call them about how critical race theory is the revealed scripture of all that is good and pure, and the uh, you know I don't know, call them the Tucker Carlsonites who are like <laughs> denouncing the uh, the scripture of Kendi like it it turns into a kind of religious battle and that's not helpful. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting how we're allowed to sort of poke fun. When I say allowed, I just mean like it seems acceptable to poke fun of Scientology and like the volcanoes and the souls and all that kind of stuff. But um, you hear like... Zenu. Uh, You're talking about Zenu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you hear the Nation of Islam, um, Farrakhan talk about... You ever heard him talk about the UFOs that are going to come and bring down like the queen of them or something? I, I don't know. But the UFO part is really the important part. And um, we, our society is very weird. And the first time I ever heard anyone use that oppressed versus oppressed, oppressed, excuse me, oppressed versus oppressor meme was about eight years ago, nine years ago or something. And now that's kind of like, I look through that lens a lot because I feel like that's the lens that people look through without even realizing it. And, and that's one of those symptoms of polarization that I talk about so much because I, I just think that that is the root of all of our problems plus social media those two things together have created like hyper polarization where the apathetic have turned into the unbeknownst like they didn't realize they were just like rattling off talking points of one crazy side or the other they just did it yeah and a lot of us are like that now i think human beings are we're tribalistic right and a lot of that's never going to change it's encoded in our evolutionary psychology uh, it was the basis for group survival in, in our ancestral environments, the idea of identifying who's in your in-group, who's in your out-group, who's in your village, who's in your, your clan, your kin, um, and, and those are the people you would support with your communal you know, hunting and gathering and um, uh, agriculture. And humans wouldn't have survived without some form of in-group, out-group mental organizing. And unfortunately, it, it can be pathologized as tribalism. That's not going to be extinguished anytime soon, but what happens is a lot of public debate consists of defining what are the schism lines of, of tribe. And I reject those who say, oh, this critical race theory is just cultural Marxism. It's not. I mean, Marxism was all about creating a schism line according to the means of production and you have capitalists versus uh, proletarians. And even among the working classes, you know, the Russian Marxists drew a line between, you know, peasant kulaks who, who owned land and urban proletarians who they saw as the vanguard of the proletarian, of the worker class. So it's sort of schisms within schisms. Um, and, and Marxists, and this actually happened at Marxist uh, conferences in the early part of the 20th century, uh, Trotsky himself personally denounced those who put nationality and religion ahead of class consciousness. And so when people would come forward and say, well, you know, I, I think the Jews should be allowed to do this and the Ukrainians should be allowed to do this. And the he, he, he was utterly ruthless in saying, we must erase ethnic, national, linguistic, faith-based distinctions. Those, those are the tools of capitalists to divide us. It should be about whether you are a worker or whether you're a capitalist. And so when you see... Um, you can modern, see how attractive that is, though. But when you, see modern people, right? when you see modern progressives focus entirely on those markers of identity, it is the opposite of what the Marxists preach, which is why, you know, when I, <laughs> I tell people, uh, 
you know, not so long ago, well, I guess it was long, it was five years ago, I, I worked at a, a progressive publication. I was the Marxist in the room. I, mean, I was the one saying, we need to focus on the means of production, comrades. And they were like, no, 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 we need to do a story about like, my my gender strategy to reach them. I'll call well, them comrade. The thing is, they didn't care because that's kind of not what sells in modern academic progressivism, which is more about um, markers of, of of gender or sexuality or or race. And look, these things happen in cycles. And that's whatever. That's that's what's taken over the progressive movement now. But don't call it Marxism. Marx himself would be appalled to see his name applied to what is essentially an upper middle class academic movement that focuses on things like pronouns and um, you know which books and poems are nominated for which prize and who's allowed to write certain magazine stories based on the color of their skin. Like this is all upper middle class, bougie, um, you know, art world fixations. Marx, if Marx were in the room, he'd issue thundering declamation, declarations about how this has nothing to do with what he was preaching. I wish Marx was still around. He, <laughs> he'd have a lot to say. He'd yeah. be like a head on like robot legs, but still. He'd be, um, he'd be yeah, like in Futurama. That's a Futurama reference. That's right. Um, yeah. It is. Yes. Um, very good. And the, but um, Justin, I mean, um, Dr. Jordan Peterson, who I don't hate, uh, by the way, there's a, he's an interesting guy, I think, because I feel like he has finally sort of become a little bit of who everyone said he was like three years ago. Um, because I thought he was always like, why is, why is this guy so controversial? Like, I couldn't really right. put my finger on it. Um, and then now, I don't know, he's, I think he's a little rock starish right now. He, he just, maybe he's just having fun and I'm being hard on him. I don't know. But it seems like he's took a, he's taken a lot of words and, and sort of, um, blurred the branding of what those words are supposed to mean. And cultural Marxism is one of those phrases that I think people associate with him. Um, same with postmodernism, things like that. And, and they get their ideas and they, they, it's through the Jordan Peterson filter, which is a testament to how popular he is really more than anything else. But I hear the phrasings in a lot of, a lot of times on, on comments on Twitter and Facebook, and it's the same phrasings that he uses. And I, and I actually think that's interesting because it's like, it's an indication of influence, but also there's like, because we are polarized, there's a knee jerk rejection of those words. And it's a lot of, a lot of it has to do with who is most famous for uttering them. And I'm the, really exhausted yeah. of thinking in terms like this, you know, like, I don't yeah. want to think like this, but it feels I, like so I'm, <laughs> I'm so exhausted. I'm, uh, yeah, there's a lot of emotional labor that we spend on this. I will say that I come to this issue as an editor, right? And as an editor, there are a lot of pieces I edit for Quillette. But you introduced me as editor of Quillette. The editor in chief of Quillette is Claire Lehman. She's the founder of Quillette. She's my boss. And, Canadian um, editor. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was North American. Whatever. Sorry. I don't even know what my title is. I, I, I'm one of her. I think I, I wanted to say an editor at Quillette. So that's I'm one of the Claire's uh, grateful toiling minions. Um, but uh, yeah, I just want to make that clear. But as an editor, one of the problems I have now with a lot of my submissions, I don't want to call it a problem because people can write what they want, is that. They'll write something that I think is, is worthy and brilliant and smart and that I want to include in our publication. But often they will they will have a tangent, which is about, and this just goes to show, and then there'll be something about postmodernism or cultural Marxism or critical race theory or intersectionality. Um, and they will talk about how all of these things, or you know, whatever their particular tangent is, uh, they will they will denounce the effects of these broad uh, trends. Often I will agree with them, but in my view, I will, as an editor, try and scale that stuff back or eliminate it. 
and just say, look, let's tell this story. Let's use plain language. If you're going to denounce something or make your argument in terms of coded phrases and saying this is bad because it reflects this school of thought that is that is inherently bad, whether it's postmodernism or CRT or whatever, you're playing the game that we reject. So, and what is that game? That game is like saying this is bad because it's colonialist or because it is infected with systems of whiteness or it is yeah. uh, neo-capitalist. Like we all and know- And it's the assumption that those words mean something bad. Yeah, and, you and can't, I say, look- You can't ever talk about those words. Right. They just mean that way. Yeah. And when you make your argument, I don't care if you're on the left or the right, if you make your argument by reference to code phrases that you expect your audience to either like or not like, you're going to preach to the converted because you're basically telling people to understand my argument, you have to know these code phrases and know their moral significance, their normative significance. This is bad, this is good. And I say, we need to make our argument in a way that rejects that kind of clubhouse thing. Now, I know this is a clubhouse you like. It's the clubhouse of people who don't like whatever, CRT or cultural Marxism, whatever. Maybe I'm in that clubhouse. I don't care. I don't want to run a newsletter for people in a clubhouse. And this is Quillette is often seen, I don't think it's a conservative publication, but it's certainly an, an anti-woke publication. This is exactly 100% the same argument when I did work at a woke publication five years ago. Um, and often, by the way, you know, I, I don't want, I had constructive dialogues with people. And I think I listened to them and they listened to me. But one of my arguments is, if you publish a piece that is all about, we need to reject the systems of oppressions and colonialisms and all this stuff, even if I agree with you, the very fact that you're using that terminology signals to readers that this is a clubhouse. And if you're not someone who uses these terms or pretends to use these terms in your daily parlance, then you don't, you shouldn't even be reading this. And I don't want to edit that kind of publication. So yeah. let's get this, let's get this terminology out of it. If you want to use that terminology, that's fine. But as long as you couch it in terms of real work, you define your terms, you say, this is what I don't like. And you don't use these heuristics these linguistic tricks as a shortcut to actual argumentation. It, it comes back to the same journalistic principle, show, don't tell. When you're using code phrases, you're telling, you're not showing. And it's kind of taking a page out of like a Frank Luntz playbook. Who the hell is Frank Luntz? Frank Luntz is, was a, um, he was like an advisor and a speechwriter for the Republicans. Little guy. I like how you just assume I know Frank Luntz. <laughs> I know. I don't know why. I figured you would. I have no idea why. Um, but yeah, and he was, uh, he's the one that created um, phrases like uh, the, the estate tax became the death tax. Oh, okay. And okay, cool. That guy. I mean, not um, cool, but now I know who yeah. you are. Yeah. Okay. And it's just like manipulating language. Um, and, and it feels like, cause to me, there is a weird rule that, that I think makes sense. Even though there's a logical part of my brain that is like, it doesn't really make sense, but, but it does, which is that white people shouldn't say the N word. It just makes sense to me. Like I, it's society itself decided that that would be the right play. And I've whole heart. <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. Like I just do. I don't know why so I can't I feel, think of any other example though. And all I want, person, all I, uh, the only reason I'm saying this is because yeah. I think the left have decided that the like the assurity, the 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 cemented rule of the N word and how you shouldn't say it now applies to like millions of things. That same level right. of definite. So I just like know? to take this opportunity to say, as a white person, yeah. I'm totally cool with not saying the N word. 
Um, like <laughs> once again, brave. I don't brave. even like saying the N word. I say the word formerly known as the N word. Um, yeah, Very princely way to put it. Well, yeah, it just takes up a lot of words on Twitter. So um, I agree. Yeah, and 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 so it's true that I think I don't know any person in my orbit who's like, oh man, this sucks. You know, when I have my car window open, I can't sing all the words to my favorite rap song. Like, I, I, I don't know anybody who like, that's a complaint in their life. And, and, but I do yeah. agree with you that if you start from that and then you, you can extrapolate that. And again, on both sides, it's like conservatives who say, well, look, we shouldn't be showing kitty porn, which means we shouldn't be allowed people to read Lolita, which means we shouldn't, allow people to read anything by that author which like again and so this since we're going to play the game of six degrees of separation to our favorite cultural uh, culture war mm -hmm. uh, fracases what was interesting and i don't know how many of your listeners in ontario but we had this dust up at the waterloo region district school board which oh, was yes. like a big thing for 15 minutes but what was interesting and i don't want to like it'll take 10 minutes to explain what happened but Basically, a teacher got called out and attacked, and the chairperson of the board, this guy Scott, tried to essentially cancel her because she was discussing the age appropriateness of a book about gender nonconformity that she had. She didn't, I don't think she was trying to cancel the book, but and what was interesting is they shut her down, they threw her off Zoom, and they couldn't quite accuse her of transphobia because she didn't say anything transphobic. But yeah. the, ra the rationale was. Her speech was leading in a direction that might be transphobic. Yeah, and because she and wanted it, a book about that subject, not in the classroom anymore. But she, they shut her up, and it was, it was it was such a fascinating case study in where this stuff leads. She hadn't actually said anything transphobic. She indicated she might be of a mindset that she might have a tendency towards possibly saying something transphobic, and on that basis, the chairperson of the board, this guy Scott literally cut her zoom off and and the whole thing was recorded and then the school board tried to suppress the youtube recording but the barbara streisand effect there were all these people who put it in all these, all these other media and it became a thing but this goes to what you were saying where you start off in this very sensible well-intentioned white thing that says hey if you're white don't say the n-word it's stupid it's it's hateful okay cool and then you you go from that to aha you were about to say something nasty about a book i like therefore and they said this, Scott said it. Scott said, you're in violation of the Ontario Human Rights Act. Oh, you have to be careful to be, you, you, you might be approaching or something. Like It was so insane because it was sort of like, you know, the, the movie Minority Report? Like, yes. it, it wasn't her behavior. It, yeah, he was essentially accusing her of pre-crime. Is that what they called it? Or future crime? Yeah, pre-crime. And, and so, so now you have people in the future crimes unit who are running school boards. Um. And, and again, as you said, it all, it all starts out from a well-intentioned space, but then the whack jobs just extrapolate it. They want to control, and on both sides, conservative, they want to control what we say and think, and it's, it's, a, it's a human tendency. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. 
or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to pivot into J.K. Rowling, but I just want to use an example because he, I like him as a politician. Nathaniel Erskine Smith, he's the MP, the federal liberal MP for the beaches. Okay. And um, he was and my beaches here in he, Toronto. Beaches here in yeah. Toronto. That's but right. like, I like you're so Toronto centric that you just assume people like in Calgary know what the beaches are. Oh, I was just talking to you. I don't, I don't care if they know. It doesn't matter to me. Don't they you know have that. listeners? Or is it just you and <laughs> yes, me? Of Kibbe course I do. But is this like my on? They like Swirly James. So they don't want to sit there and be like, just for my listeners out in Alberta, the MP for the beat. Like, you know, so what accent is that? It's like, I don't know. Like, That's so weird. Introducing dogs at a dog show. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Anyways, um, but uh, I, I asked him once, I was like, um, do you think um, what uh, J.K. Rowling said was transphobic? It was right after that tweet came out. And he's like, and he literally said, quote, I don't really know anything about it, but almost certainly she's transphobic. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> and awesome. I wasn't kidding. And That's I was awesome. just like, and I was like, and, it, and, you know, and there's all these examples of that, of people who just refuse to do any work at all. They just like, okay, I accept it. And on that, and um, we'll, we'll wrap up after we talk about this for a couple minutes, if, um, if that's okay. Um, I wanted to see if we could draw a parallel between um, the, the subset of unvaccinated people who have a distrust of big pharma and government and have like conspiracy theories as to what is happening. The reason why I'm asking Jonathan, just for everyone else at home, is because he did write the book called Among the Truthers, uh, A Journey Through America's Growing Conspiracist Underground. And I've thought of your book a few times when, since this has started because of the 5G nanobots, um, you know, of the like spike proteins that are like going to injure your wife if you have sex mm. with her. And, yeah. like, all, all of these like and, and mostly the New World Order stuff that all goes back to like the global cabal of people that want to enslave us and chip us and everything. Do you see parallels? I guess there's a parallel in the conspiracist mind. So maybe there's obvious parallels. But um, did, did it remind you of your work? on that book at all or have you just sort of stayed away from the conspiracy stuff so uh it's weird over the last year or two so my book came out in 2011 and um in the last year or so there's been this sort of like new wave of people who've been buying it and talking about it um and i always say you know people say oh you know you were you you saw this coming and i say actually i didn't see it coming because i never said that like a guy like Donald Trump, who's, I mean, he's just a hard-boiled conspiracy theorist. I mentioned him in passing in the book and saying, oh yeah, even this, you know, uh, real estate mogul, Donald Trump, he believes in some of this uh, birther stuff about Barack Obama. Like never in a million years would I have predicted that like this guy is going to become president. So uh, I, that book is sort of ancient history in, in many respects. Um, the one thing that I did get right is that conspiracy theories are narratives of distrust, right? And if you lose faith in the media and government and religion, because we live in a post-religious age, uh, there, there are no authorities that are unquestioned sources of information in people's lives. What it often comes down to is that you also have a generation of people who have had complete freedom and complete autonomy. And it's almost more of a behavioral phenomenon than a political phenomenon. I'll give you an example. So my, my gym trainer works at a lot of different gyms. And when Ontario imposed a mandate that said to use gyms, you need to be vaccinated, he lost some of his clients because the client said, well, screw this. Um, actually, one client paid some guy $7,000 to get vaccinated for him. And so he'd have the certificate, um, which I thought was the height of stupidity. It's like, 
you're out seven thousand dollars and you're not vaccinated like that's but you can go to the gym and do push-ups so good for you did you get caught uh caught? no and in fact i mean i know the guys identity but like i can i can't report these stories because this is a really good trainer i don't want to burn the source anyway yeah. I mean, this you is gotta prioritize you know I mean, dude, this, 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 this body doesn't happen by accident right so <laughs> <laughs> i tell you a private channel you can make a lot of money but <laughs> what what i found was interesting so i said Believe tell me <laughs> Tell me some of the stories about these guys who are vaccinated. And what's interesting is this many of these guys, they're they're younger guys, they have their own businesses. And I'm generalizing here, but I'd sort of a composite of some of the people he was describing. Because he had, you know, he works in different parts of the city. So he sort of saw who was getting vaccinated and who wasn't among his clients. And and there were a few people who were like super fit and health food. And for them, it was like it's like Djokovic, the tennis guy. It's gluten-free and, you know, this body uh, doesn't need any artificial, all that bullshit. But a lot of the guys, as I said, they own their own businesses. They live by themselves. They, for their entire adult lives, no one told them what to do. They, um, they worked when they want. They had their own place. If a girlfriend told them to dress in a different way, they dumped her. They spent half their time, like, detailing their car. Politics isn't a big part of their life, but when the pandemic came, it was the first time anyone in their life, in their adult life, had said, you have to do this and you can't do that. It was the first time anyone put any boundaries on them. And it wasn't part of the natural order of things for some of these people. Because if you're 25 years old, this may be the first time in your life somebody said, you can't play in your indoor soccer league. Uh, you know, you can't go, can't go to a bar. You can't go to your friend's restaurant. You can't go to a party. And... They rebelled against it because, again, this is a post-religious generation. They don't, you know, they don't think in terms of moral religious strictures. Um, this is an unparalleled generation in terms of the wealth they have. So often, not always, I mean, this, you know, this generation has a lot of economic challenges, but a lot of these people, they are not the, the, the impoverished, you know, the stereotypical Trump voter who, like, a Walmart popped up and he lost his job. So now he has no money and he's addicted yeah. to like, it, they're not like that. Often they have, it's because they have enjoyed a lot of autonomy and privilege in their life. And suddenly somebody said, you can do 99 things, but you can't do this hundredth thing. And it's like the first time anyone set any boundaries on them. And it was weird for them. It was weird and unnatural. And it wasn't a political reaction. It was, uh, I'd say like a socio psychological reaction that said, this is unnatural. This is, this is not normal. And whoever's telling me to do this is like a dictator. So, yeah. Yeah, it kind of had all the ingredients, though, too. Like, it, I mean, I, I, the whole Wuhan lab theory thing, it, it's another one of the subjects that bothers me. Because if you go back two years, you're like, everyone that believes in that is a racist and they're kooky. And now it's probably the more popular out of the two theories, I would say. And, and so it feels like um, the media has been, and I, I don't know if I said this to you when you were on the Dean Blundell podcast, but... Um, I've been thinking about this a lot about how the media seems to be picking stories, not based on the public interest component of them, but on whether or not they think that it will negatively um, motivate the public to do something negative. Do you know what I mean? Like they don't want to, like, we don't want to cause a panic. So we don't want to talk about right. the masks and that stuff. And is that new or am I just seeing this for the first time? I think you often have people in positions of authority who have a kind of unspoken contempt for the mass citizenry. And again, this happens on both sides, but here in Canada, 
Um, one of the expressed reasons that our government, our liberal government gave for, for being slow on limiting travel from overseas was that, well, this, this is racist and people are going to stigmatize Chinese people and uh, it's going to cause xenophobia because the assumption was that as soon as you, as soon as the government gives its imprimatur to the idea that uh, a lot, you know, this disease came from the other side of the world, we're all going to go out and break windows in Chinatown. Um, and to and to be completely fair, there was some racism against people of East Asian descent. I actually witnessed this once in a store uh, out in Scarborough where this, well, I, I don't know, I think it was racist, but it was like this, this guy, he walked, this was at the height of the panic, I think it was in March 2020, he walked in, it was this young guy, and he saw there was an East Asian woman behind the counter, and he kind of recoiled. And like he bought a pack of gum, like it's it's like he was in a nuclear reactor trying to stay away from the core. Like, oh, really? you know, it, you do see yeah. stuff like that. And then, of course, being the good, like, you know, liberal that I am, I was like, when it was time for me to purchase something, I was practically making out with the woman. I was so <laughs> yeah, she was like, get the hell away from me. Um, can, but, can I have that piece in your mouth, girl? <laughs> so so you do you, you did see stuff like that. But the idea, well, I mean, the so this one of the ideological pathologies of progressivism progressivism right now is the idea that anybody who is not suitably indoctrinated in the most avant-garde theories of identity is a sort of presumptive mouth-breathing racist and we have to we can't encourage that at all um and so yeah that was part of the reason unfortunately that canada was slow in some respects to enact travel bans um but then you also saw that on the right where you would see conservatives who would, who are just reflexively against common sense public health measures like masks mm -hmm. and whatnot, because they just they thought, well, this is the thin edge of the wedge, and it's going to lead to fascism, and um, and and they went overboard too, because I think in the culture war, both sides think that the public is so simple-minded and can be so easily led astray that unless they fight for every inch even when it's not worth fighting because you're actually fighting for something that's stupid, like, like opposing common sense, uh, yeah. public health bans that, that the, that Joe public is just going to become deluded and become seduced by the other side of the spectrum. And that's it. You've lost them and society is going to fall to pieces. Um, you, I mean, and, yeah. and again, you have a, there's a lot of contempt for the ordinary man and woman on the street. And, and to be fair, YouTube and Twitter and Facebook gives us a window into some people who are genuinely stupid. Um, you know, anti-vaxxers who go uh, harass politicians at their homes and stuff. Like, there's absolutely no excuse for that. Or, or you know, on the other side, you saw, remember here in Ontario, you saw people protesting Doug Ford, who's the conservative premier of Ontario, and they brought a like a fake, yeah. a guillotine. They brought a guillotine yeah. to the protest. And people were like, that's really wrong. And they were like, what? <laughs> that's what it's like Al-Qaeda would do. That's it's not, not, it's not a real guillotine. It's like a fake guillotine. So it's cool, yeah. right? And it's art. Um, In fact, I'd like a grant for this yeah. piece. <laughs> uh, so yeah, both sides do it. Both sides is, uh, I just warn, trigger warning, I engage, I guess it's post facto, trigger warning, I engage in what is known as both sidesism, uh, which is, is, yeah. is a thing like that's that is a thought crime, especially among progressives. It's a thought crime for me, too, in a way, because uh, my biggest argument now is, guys, there's more than two sides. We don't we don't have to just listen to one. That's side multi sidesism. You're a multi sidesist, which I'm a multidimensional 
thinker, Jonathan. I, and creature. Know. Yeah. You know what's really funny is that I'm I work on the Dean Blendell network and and I ramble and and people are like, James, uh, you know, you're you're really smart. And and every time someone says that to me, I'm like, I'm a high school graduate. And so I think that way of guys like yourself. Um, you're, and you always are careful to say like, oh, I'm not an academic, but you're, you're a lawyer, right? You went to law school. Uh, I went to law school and I was a tax lawyer of all things for two years. Oh, that's exciting. No, it's not. <laughs> Just kidding. And I you, quit. You still, you still look the part too. I quit because I was, by being a tax lawyer, I was reinforcing Jewish stereotypes. So I quit. <laughs> I said, I'm going to give this job to a goyish person because this is wrong that I am reinforcing these stereotypes. But man, I saved my clients a lot of lot of cash. Was it Doug Ford? It's like I have Jewish friends. My accountant's Jewish. No, I think Jewish. oh no, I think that was Trump. Um, he went. There was some speech, some hilarious. No, speech. it was it was it was Ford because his wife was like, yeah, yeah, we have an accountant who's Jewish. Like she was all over it, and she sounded Jewish. Sorry, is is Doug Ford married to? Is Doug Ford married Doug to Ford said he was, she was half Jewish and then no, no, referenced either an accountant or a lawyer that was also Jewish. But that voice, I, is Doug Ford married to Fran Drescher? Like what's no that, that was an attempt at Costanza's mom. Oh I mean, okay. I'm yeah. yeah. You're you need um like a elocutionist or a voice coach of some kind because I especially when you do like figures of authority, they all sound like yeah, some kind shrill. of like Dickensian bad guy. Uh, we'll talk after the show because I, I can recommend. Some okay. People. Well, listen. If you have some sort of um, program or tutorial, I can take a look at for my. Can I talk about anti-Semitism for for a moment? Because um, sure. Okay. Well, sure. Since I'm Is Jewish, because I don't mean it like that. I just since, since I'm Jewish, you anymore. can't say no. You absolutely can't say no because <laughs> that'd be like John wanted to talk about anti-Semitism and uh, James yeah. shot, I, I have shot no him down. Status. Okay. Well, I know because I, I know I have to go, but like. Anti-Semitism is a very complicated phenomenon. I actually think Canada, I've lived in Canada almost my whole life. It's, I think it's possibly the least anti-Semitic country on the face of the planet, and that includes Israel. Um, however, people talk about anti-Semitism in a very reductionist way. So like the neo-Nazi who says Jews are vermin and they need to be exterminated, sometimes Probably we use not. this... We, we use the same term to describe that phenomenon as we use to describe the, the guy who says, hey, John, I need a lawyer, preferably Jewish, to do my taxes. Like, one, some arguably can be anti-Semitic, but I, it's weird to conflate the two. And George Orwell wrote a great essay about... Are, are you saying that my, my impersonation of George's mom was anti-Semitic? Actually, I don't think George Costanza... <laughs> I don't think his character... A lot of people assume he's Jewish. I don't think he's presented as Jewish in Seinfeld. Like, I think, aren't, isn't he like Mediterranean or, I mean, Jerry's parents are Jewish, obviously, but I don't think George Costan, anyway, I don't know. Like you're maybe, know. maybe. Good question. The point is, so I'm getting to, I, I couldn't get through an interview with the name dropping Orwell. He wrote this, this great essay and he talked about how anti-Semitism in Britain was the anti-Semitism of Jewish admiration, where he talked about being in a pub and, and there was some guy who was saying, yeah, Jews are smart. Uh, they don't work with their bodies. They work with their brains. Which, yeah, it's kind of anti-Semitic if, you know, if you extrapolate that to the idea of sort of like Jews as pulling the strings in society from positions of power. But it's like this weird kind of anti-Semitism where it's like, yeah, Jews are smart. Um, I remember, I think it was the president of Malaysia who got in trouble 20 years ago or something when he said that Muslims needed to follow the examples of Jews by being clever. And people say, oh, that's anti-Semitic, but... It's more anti-Muslim. Well, there is this... this, this 
offshoot of anti-Semitism that can sort of blur in a weird way into admiration of Jews. And so when you talk about uh, Doug Ford's spouse, if she indeed says, I, I don't remember, but, uh, or some of Trump's comments, I mean, he made similar comments to, and there was a group of Jewish donors a couple of years ago, where it was kind of like, yeah, Jews are awesome. Um, you know, I call one up when, I'm, or remember the Family Guy episode, the, about the Weinstein, when you wish upon a Weinstein, the Jewish, that uh, Peter Griffiths needed financial help. And he's been, yeah. so this uh, sacred Jew, like, came to help him out of his financial trouble. And Fox actually deleted that episode because they thought it was, yeah. Fuck off. Really? But then the Barbra Streisand effect, everyone wanted to watch it. So I think you can watch it online. Um, but uh, anyway, and, of all my- conspiracy oh, guys are going to be like, the Jews took it down because they, they were- Well, they probably did. It's the media, right? So uh, all, all I will say yeah. is that I don't like anti-Semitism of any kind, but if you're going to be an anti-Semite, be the kind who hires Jewish tax lawyers because okay. they're pretty good. And it beats all the other super toxic Nazi kinds of anti-Semitism. I'm going to try to improve, uh, and I'll let you go after this. I'm going to try to improve my impersonations of Stanza's mom because I actually don't think that it, there's anything wrong with it. And not only that, it's the Apu rule. And the Apu rule bothers me because I know right now in India, there's an Indian man doing a fucking phenomenal Canadian accent. And I don't see why we should have to. We like... need to cancel that dude. No, we, no. Need to, okay. we need to cancel him. Get out of here. Can you post his employee like like his details? Because I think that's our next social justice campaign. Okay. Well, I was gonna. T I, I think I told you a, a year ago. I might have messaged you or something. Maybe it was someone else. But um, the um, the cat came back. Remember that like seven minute cartoon by the board, film board of Canada? Yes. But the cat came back. The yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, well, yeah. At, at one point, he takes one of those. I don't know what they're called, but they go in the train tracks, and you got to like push up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's and he's going along the train tracks towards a mountain, running over several women who are tied to the tracks, Jonathan. Yeah. And so I was like, first of all, it's really bizarre to see it now. At the time, you probably didn't think of anything. But now I'm like, I didn't feel like it was misogynistic. I was like, this is so weird. And then out of nowhere, a cow, just like six women <laughs> and a cow tied to the tracks at different spots. And this guy trying to get rid of the cat, by, and he's got to like go through them. It's unrealistic Indeed. because he wouldn't be able to get past the first woman. Like it, that's it would a, just stop. Hopefully, that's not body shaming. I don't know. If I think uh, I think we have to post a link. Uh, actually, I wonder if it's still on the Canadian Film Board website. It is. Uh, I watch it. I give it to my kids, and I tell okay. and I have to tell my daughter because she asked me. She's like, "Why are those ladies getting run?" Because she's five. She's like, "Why are those ladies getting run over?" And I'm like, <laughs> I, and I'm like, I think someone mean tied them to the track, why, but they're fine. They're they're why fine. Are those ladies getting run over. Um, yeah. Okay. Out out of the mouths of babes. Yeah. Here's your pink dolly. Go go play. <laughs> I don't know. All right. Well, that was a good one, Jonathan. I hope you'll come back. And um, thank you for dressing up. <laughs> Do something about the theme music, okay? I will. Here, just for that. Um, thank you <laughs> for coming out. See you. Okay. Have a good Talk one. Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. 
do did will the story of people podcast is now available on the crier media network the first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories ready tara sloan from the san jose sharks undercurrent podcast at nbc sports Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. <laughs>